Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host. And right now, I am in sunny Los Angeles, California, where it is like 40 or 50 degrees. And I like brought like warm weather clothes and I'm freezing. Um, On the other hand, it's really pretty and better than it is in New York City at the moment. Um, Joining me are both in Washington, D.C., Evelyn Farkas of the German Marshall Fund and a regular contributor to MSNBC and Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University um, Law School. What's the weather like there? Is it bad? Uh, disgusting. It's, it's 36 degrees. Yeah. Oh, it's a wintry mix. Yes, that's our new term of art for yuckiness. Indiscriminate winter yuckiness. Would you I agree. Like- Indiscriminate winter yuckiness is the order of the day. Wait a minute. That sounds like Corey Shockey. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. And what is what is the weather report from wherever you are? <laughs> I am in London today, and the weather is cold but clear. It's not raining in London in February. It's astonishing. And, and it, it's it warmer than D.C. I'm looking at my phone, 44 degrees. <laughs> wow, that's, I got to say, that's kind of impressive. But, Corey, you really like, like, some days I'm like, doing a podcast with you. And then I turn on the TV and you're in New York. And then, you know, you're like, I don't know, like. I am all about complicating enemy targeting. They're (laughs) going to have to chase me to to get me. Yeah, but I think I'm thinking of, you know, that we should have something like the Corey Shockey uncertainty principle that we could know where you are or, or your velocity, but we couldn't know both. <laughs> what a beautiful compliment, David Rothkopf. I curtsy my thanks to you. Yeah. Well, if you if you if you think it's a, a compliment to be compared to a subatomic particle, <laughs> I do. <laughs> Moreover, deep state radio nerds will agree with me. Yeah, by the way, there was some good news on that front. You know, we deal with all manner of foreign and national security policy. And I did read an article this morning that said that the galaxy that is hurtling towards the Milky Way and will ultimately consume us and is moving at 68 miles per second, uh, it looks like it will not get here until 600 million years later than we thought it would. (laughs) Fabulous. That's reassuring. So I, I hope you feel better about that. I do. I do feel better. And Rosa, um, because Rosa, be I think, s- is probably disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> of course. 
<laughs> I'm so sorry I wasn't with you guys last week. I, If I thought I could have done it without coughing up a lung onto the table, I would have. Yuck. Yuck. Yeah, that's um, Among other things, that reminds me of uh, Val Kilmer's very bad performance in the Wyatt Earp movie starring Kurt Russell. <laughs> Um, okay, but, I do not think it was a bad performance. Oh, you like that performance? I do. Yes, I confess. Okay. I like the movie Tombstone, and I especially like Val Kilmer in it. Oh, well, um, okay. I like the movie. I've seen it a number of times. But in any event, um, obviously, we're here to discuss national security. So I'll begin by, you know, Corey, what were your uh, thoughts on the Grammys? <laughs> yeah, because that contemporary culture really is my wheelhouse, David. How brilliant <laughs> to start with me. But I have just had the pleasure of my magnificent sister here with me in London. So, so uh, unexpectedly, I know that Casey Musgraves won for Best Album. I know that Michelle Obama was on. I know that the Grammys actually featured the 50-some percent of the population who are female and make music. Wow. Oh. Rosa, are you disturbed? Aren't you guys shocked? I'm just saying, Rosa, are you disturbed that Corey knows this? I am a little <laughs> disturbed because my children actually had to remind me that what the Grammys were. <laughs> I get them sort of mixed up with the Emmys and the Oscars and, you know, everything else. Um, so yeah, uh, Corey, Corey, you're letting down the side. <laughs> it's entirely due to my sister's presence. She leaves tomorrow and I'm receding backwards in slow steps into the 19th century. That's yeah. You know what it is? It's, it's, you just, you just run out of brain cells and, and, and I feel like, you know, any brain cell devoted to the Grammys is going to knock something else right out. So right. you gotta, you gotta so, make choices. I had a, um, a mentor when I was a PhD student who refused to learn my name for about seven months because he that said every time he learned a new student's name, he lost a medieval French king. And I was going to have to prove I was deserving of a medieval French king before he would bother with my name. And the shock to me was that I ever achieved that <laughs> level, not that it took seven months. And and who was this person? Now we want to know his name so we can forget it promptly. Yep. Or, or please tell me you forgot his name. Yeah, that, that, that would be the appropriate, the appropriate response would be you've forgotten his name. Well, actually, he lives on because uh, in when I was teaching at West Point, there was always one student who wouldn't come into clarity in my mind. And I told this story to my West Point class one day when I mortifyingly couldn't remember a student's name. Um, and they supplied that student's name to me as Pepin the Short, a medieval French king. <laughs> and because West Point is a small college, they pass this down from one class to the next. So the kid whose name I couldn't remember was, um, was as a matter of, of legacy, Pep in the short. Wow, I like that story very much. 
I'm sure everybody listening now, Evelyn, did you watch the Grammys or are we going to move? I, I did not. But but um, since I, you know, am a uh, regular on MSNBC, I have it sort of on like my wallpaper and I, I managed to catch these awesome shots of the ladies on the stage. Dolly Parton, who is one of my all time favorites singing. Apparently she sang Jolene with someone else really famous and um, Miley Cyrus. But go on. <laughs> <laughs> and then okay. Michelle Obama appeared in the coolest, like, like silver lame kind of like pantsuit thing that I would like to go out and buy. But and but none of you are commenting the fact that our next president, Cardi B, won the best rap album. <laughs> and by the way, by all appearances, she's a conservative. <laughs> She's well, fighting about tax rates with people. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> so, so is everybody at the moment, which is an interesting twist. So this weekend, you know, one of the things that happened was Elizabeth Warren stood up in 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 uh, Massachusetts and said she was running for president, and then Amy Klobuchar, Senator Amy Klobuchar. Um, stood in front of an absolutely frozen crowd at like four <laughs> degrees above in a snowstorm and declared that she was running for president, which, of course, produced a tweet from our president um, saying, see, they've done it again. They talk about global warming, but it was actually snowing. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so one is climate change. The other is weather. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but it's sweet. You think you can difference. penetrate the ecosystem of Donald Trump's mind with that logic, Evelyn. It's very sweet to realize how optimistic you are. I know, I know. He doesn't want to hear the truth. Yeah, but but Amy Klobuchar responded by suggesting that Trump's hair wouldn't have been able to withstand the weather. <laughs> yeah, that's why but he didn't go on or fallen soldiers from World War One in France, supposedly. Right, because of the drizzle. But mm -hmm. it suggests to me, you know, the Democratic field right now, I saw a list and the two leading contenders, according to the Washington Post pundit list, were actually Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar, um, with Joe Biden third and falling. Um, and, uh, you know, there, Elizabeth Warren was also up there at the top. And it suggests for just at least this moment that once again, the Democratic Party, as it was in the 2016 campaign, is being led by by women. And I was thinking what a terrible travesty this is, because the three women I would vote for first are all on the podcast. Why are none of you? <laughs> I curtsy my thanks to you, David. That's that is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it it is. But let's just go around the table. Rosa, if you were running for president, you know, none of these people really talk about foreign policy, national security that much. Um, now, I understand why they don't. But I'm just wondering, what would be your platform if you were running for president? Oh, that's a really hard question, David. Um, I think my platform would not be terribly interesting. Um, it would be you know, an effort. A bold hmm? choice, appealing to America <laughs> by being as boring as they well, are. Well, I'm not sure people want an interesting foreign policy. It's like it's like That's that supposed Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. Um, 
I think the goal of America should be to have an uninteresting foreign policy, which is to say our goal should be avoiding getting ensnared in crises, preferably particularly avoiding getting ensnared in multiple crises at once, and to avoid sparking crises for other people. I think I think I would I would seek to have a do no harm foreign policy, uh, first of all, um, uh, rather than a interventionist foreign policy, which which doesn't mean never any interventions under any circumstances. But I think that the the, the Hippocratic oath is probably not a bad one from a foreign policy perspective. Um, but specifically, uh, I certainly at a minimum would get rid of our ridiculous trade war. Um, I would focus on getting us back into some of the multilateral agreements Trump has gotten us out of and getting us into some of the multilateral agreements that we should have been in from the beginning, uh, but haven't been in, including under Obama, because nobody really put any political capital into it, like like the law of the sea, which I find this interesting. <laughs> Yay, three cheers for the law the of the sea treaty. <laughs> um, Jeez, uh, this is really the nerd fest of nerd fest. I know, but. I know. Um, <laughs> I think you know there, there are other there are there are problems that I don't know what I would do about to be honest. Um, that that being said, for all my do no harm philosophy, you mean you like know, I think that like dry skin in the winter or <laughs> lotion, lotion. No, he's got the answer to that, David. Yeah, we know we know the answer to that one. Does. Yeah, you just 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 ask us. We'll give you brand recommendations. Um, <laughs> no, I think that the the harder problem. I mean, I mean, there's a lot that's easy, right? I mean, the 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 good thing about Donald Trump Trump is that he's created some low hanging fruit when it comes to foreign policy in terms of forehead smacking idiocy that could be reversed. <laughs> but but I do actually think that to be to be fair to Trump, it's not it's not obvious what the right thing to do in Afghanistan or Syria or Iraq is right now. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think Trump's, you know, inconsistent, pull him out, no, let's not, yes, let's, et cetera, certainly isn't helping. But I'm not at all sure that I have a, a better strategy, quite frankly. Maybe Cora does, though. Um, well, I, I have a slogan. Well, okay. That's, well, that's I mean, the start. First do no, I think hers first do no harm was pretty good. And I have to say, you know, most people, if you said to them, you're running for president, what's your platform? They wouldn't have come up with as much good stuff as Rosa just did, so I got to give her credit. Rosa rocks. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt about that. Well, I'm, I'm currently I'm voting for her over the other two of you, but I'm going to give you a what? chance, Evelyn. Evelyn, I'm signing up to be the chief help on Rosa's campaign. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. Bipartisan campaign. Evelyn, what's the? I have, I have to, David. I have to admit that that at the moment when you were asking me that, when I should have been quickly checking the newspaper and Googling, you know, what is a good foreign policy instead of busy Googling who is Pep in the short? So I was, I was a little distracted. Fortunately, all of our deep state radio nerds already know the answer to that. So you don't even need to read it out, Rosa. No, well, it's I discovered that he was the son of Charles Martel. Yes, well, we know that. But the interesting thing is that if we were listening to, to if we were all part of Washington for Beautiful People, which is hosted by Emily Brandwin, who's a musical theater nut, we would very quickly be getting into the lyrics of the Stephen Schwartz musical, Pippin. Exactly yeah. right. And, mm -hmm. and, and all of a sudden this would come to light and then be- The song War in the Science from Pippin? That's the only singing it you're gonna hear from me on this podcast. <laughs> 
The song War is a Science from Pippin is just fabulous, Rosa. You would absolutely love it. You'll be chortling with glee when you listen <laughs> we'll to it. We'll all be singing in a little, in a and, little and, chorus. And, and it's the only song I know in, that has in its lyrics the words enfilade and defilade. <laughs> exactly. Which, Don't make which, me Google. Oh <laughs> uh, no! Pull it up in pull it up in iTunes because hearing it's actually way better than reading the lyrics. Uh, yeah, I actually probably could sing. All, that was the first musical I saw on Broadway. Actually, is that right? Yeah, ah, and I actually did you probably, see it with Ben Vereen? I did. <gasps> oh, ben I'm Vereen jealous. and John Rubenstein as Pippin. Ah. And uh, and what's her name? Eileen Ryan from the Beverly Hillbillies as the grandmother. Um, and Jill Clayburn. Jill, Jill Clayburn. Oh, she was fabulous. The boy, the fact that you know all of this, man, we have zeroed in on your cultural sweet spot. <laughs> Old musicals. Yeah. No, I'm very comfortable with that. <laughs> so really comfortable with. Um, uh, okay, Evelyn, you said you had a slogan. What's yeah, slogan? my slogan is like, uh, keep America competitive. I think I would run on a platform. It's a good one. Yeah, I would run on a platform of we need to um, basically make sure that we are competitive against China economically and militarily. Same when it comes to Russia, you know, stop these people from interfering in our democracy. We need to, um, I don't believe in the Hippocratic Oath necessarily. I think we should look Do to more. see where. You're, you're in favor of. You're in favor of harm. <laughs> no, I'm not. I feel that President Obama, I love him, often um, erred towards doing nothing when he might have done something um, to save lives and um, uh, act in the interest of national security. So I would argue for more of an internationalist and somewhat interventionist, I mean, a smart interventionist foreign policy. Um, I am very disturbed that we continue to remain in a hands-off stance on Syria. And then we did nothing on Myanmar. Um, and I don't mean that we necessarily have to go invade these countries. I mean, there are lots of things we can do with diplomacy and with our military uh, with assistance, uh, which would in some cases obviously uh, require the use of the military. But um, I, so I, I'm a little more um, uh, oriented towards trying to, to, to be more uh, clear-eyed, but, but not rule out the possibility of doing something in a humanitarian circumstance. And I am very much informed in this perspective by my time in Bosnia and my academic work on the war there, et cetera. So my time in the post-war. No, post I think that's very fair. I think that's a very fair critique and, and it's one that I share. Uh, I think, I think, I think you can still have a do no harm philosophy, but recognize that sometimes doing nothing does more harm than doing something. Exactly right, Rosa. Yeah, yeah. What? So that's all. I just wanted to add that part. Corey, it's so refreshing, isn't it, to actually hear somebody say something even slightly critical of Saint Obama. <laughs> 
I love President Obama, and I have a lot of respect for him. So it pains me to yeah, but point let's be, out let's weaknesses. Be, he can love him, but let's be so serious. So one of the things I most resent of the um, incontinence of the Trump administration is that it's making Obama foreign policy look good by comparison, and Obama foreign policy doesn't actually deserve to look good. Excellent if. point. However, <laughs> the visual of in the incontinence, incontinence. That, it, I know, I was one that I could have done too. without because <laughs> I apologize, David. I retract it. I wish I could erase it. If only we had Etch-a-Sketch memories. <laughs> yeah, but, but I'm just telling you, it's it's. I I now believe he's wearing Depends. You have now convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I feel like that's a great visual, David, because here in London, when the president came to visit, there was a gigantic, like, oh, yeah. Macy's Thanksgiving Day exactly. Parade balloon of President Trump as an orange baby in a big diaper. And as we have talked so many times before, Mel Brooks and the belief that ridiculing uh evil and ridiculing danger brings it down to the dimensions where we feel empowered to do something about it. That's excellent. Well, we should we should make Donald Trump's depends a thing. Maybe we'll sell them in the sweatshirt. <laughs> okay. Make them MAGA red. Okay, mm, deep state no. radio nerds. What should be written across the butt of the Donald Trump defense that we are going to sell on deep state radio uh, merchandising? Oh, my God. Just uh, the only thing I would say on that is, nerds, there's a lot of room to work with. Um, you, could write oh. a, <laughs> you could write a very long slogan that would go across that. Oh. <laughs> so can I have a shot? At yeah, no, foreign absolutely. Policy? I was, I was, I, I definitely want you to have your chance to be the <laughs> next president. <laughs> uh, so I would say an American foreign policy sh can be boiled down to four principles. The first is that um, play team sports, right? Getting along with other countries, gathering allies around you, is not only cost efficient, but it it reminds my mom that that other people think we're right, and that's comforting when you're doing dangerous stuff in the world and protecting yourself against dangerous threats. So, so my first principle is play team sports. My second is, as you know, I am a historian of the Eisenhower administration, and I've always loved President Eisenhower's formulation that the American people deserve security and solvency. It is not good enough mm -hmm. to do abstract um, budgets in the Defense Department of how much it would take. We are right to challenge our defense professionals to say, how do you do it within the means we are willing to make available? And to force creativity, adaptation, you know, think about Eisenhower uh, telling the Pentagon that challenging them to explain to him in 1954 why, she, why he should spend more than one nickel on anything other than nuclear missiles or the ability to protect against nuclear missiles. And it's been a really long time since the Pentagon has been challenged. Um, and it's been considered patriotic to say, 
do a lot more with less and figure it out because that's why we trust you. My third principle would be that um, have a better relationship with your neighbors than you have with anybody else. The greatest godsend blessing our Mm -hmm. sweet provincial country ever got was to land in between Mexico and Canada. And we are so often jerks to both of them and and appreciating them both uh, is such an easy pickup. We're missing so many opportunities to have North America as an energy platform, as an economic platform, as a foreign policy platform, as a way that we stand shoulder to shoulder with two other magnificent countries and face the world. Oh my Uh, God, that was great. Yeah, I like Can I clap? <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Thank clap. You, I, I like the idea. This and the is... last one. Oh, I mean, good. Done. Done. <laughs> and the last of my four principles for American foreign policy is that values, living by your values and projecting your values has made American hegemony cost-effective because people aspire to what we take for granted and what we even occasionally try and produce in the world. And values aren't just who we are. They're a very good strategy for who you gather around you, sharing the costs of what you need to do in the world and driving down the cost because the magnetism of who we are as a political community makes us different than the bad guys. And that's worth preserving at a very high price. So those are my four. Wow. I, hey. I, <laughs> I curtsy I, my thanks, Evelyn. Can, can, I, awesome. can, I, can I add a little bit to the Oh, please do. Improve on it. With improve upon it, my friend. Maybe foreign policy begins at home, even more at home. Um, you know, and we've talked, we've talked before about the, the fact that in, at this point in human history, uh, the distinctions between domestic policy and foreign policy really don't exist anymore because what is what happens here domestically has a profound impact all around the world. Um, and that that both goes to things like when the United States decides that we're going to build walls and broadcast uh, to the rest of the world the notion that we're not really interested in, in having immigrants or having people come here from other places, that that actually affects our foreign policy deeply. It, it, oh, it affects, absolutely. You know, it affects who comes here. It affects who wants to come here. It affects how we are perceived. It affects, you know, it, it gets, it, it not only gets to Corey's fourth principle of living by your values, but, but I think that it, it also goes to the point of we're always under a spotlight but and then the other piece of this is not just the symbolic impact of what we do here at home, uh, uh, but that the U.S. will not be able to stay competitive. The U.S. will not be able to be an effective team player. The U.S. will not be able to do anything in the world if we continue to fail our own population by having standard education, by having by locking up an astronomical percentage of our citizens. Uh, by having income inequality that is becoming increasingly impossible uh, for people to to bridge the gaps between the richest and the poorest and so forth, that all of those things have to be seen as foreign policy issues just as much as they are domestic issues. Yep, I endorse candidate Brooks's platform. 
Maybe we could run as a triumvirate. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, I, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking of co-consuls. <laughs> oh, I'm thinking of the Roman well example. Roman. Yeah, but, yeah, but you know. okay. But here's the difference. Um, it is possible. Uh, I had an experience recently that caused me to reflect on the fact that the characteristics of the leadership of many women are different, not just in magnitude, but in type to the characteristics of male leadership. I had an experience where I was not considered uh, a leader because I was breezy and smiling. Oh my and God. And it was a shock to me because, uh, because I work to not seem like as much of a ruthless killer as I actually am. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it occurred to me that that the complaints were complaints. Very gendered. Yeah, very gendered. That is that um, the way women lead, or at least some women lead, um, may be different from the way men lead. And I, have, I even have an elaborate theory about it, which is that since women are in many cases less physically able to protect themselves than many men, that we are more natural alliance builders and we are more naturally cooperative and, and more naturally uh, think about solutions that are good for everybody. And that may be wild and, and um, may mark me as the militant feminist that I am, but it has been occurring to me a lot in the last week or so that perhaps there are characteristics of leadership that are more prevalent in the female population and that the corridors of power are only beginning to acknowledge as legitimate in their own right rather than not what men do. Well, that's an interesting point. And, and uh, first of all, I totally discount the idea that you couldn't defend yourself. I assume that if anybody <laughs> came at you, they would be sliced to ribbons and they wouldn't <laughs> even know it. So bad. <laughs> uh, but but, 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 but let, let, me, let me start, pick up on that, Rosa, because in the past week, we've heard that, you know, among the women who are leading the democratic field at the moment, one of them is, is is not likable enough potentially, oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and and another one of them is <clears throat> to her staff, and I was thinking, well, that that really should be disqualifying. I mean, after all, you know, <laughs> there's, um, there's no male senator of whom that is true, right? And Bill Clinton yeah, abuse a staff member, and you know, you know, I mean, I, I could just we could just go on and on at male leaders, yeah, who, yeah. Yep. who have been jerks. No, but, but here I we mean, go again. Absolutely. Here we go again. Sure. And, and Corey is right. And you're right. Uh, that the women are caught in a, in a double bind. Um, if, if they don't, if they don't demonstrate, uh, characteristics that are traditionally perceived as male, they'll be told that they're too soft, that they don't have gravitas, uh, uh, you are you are deficient, but if you do act like a man, well, then you're deficient as a woman, and you're told that you're shrill and mean and aloof and abrasive and unlikable. 
work to continue to battle them. And, and the first step, I do think, is, is calling it out when it happens. You know, there's actually a piece in, in the New York Times today as we're recording this, uh, commenting on how sexism is currently playing out on the campaign trail uh, and the kinds of adjectives that are now being used to describe uh, Elizabeth Warren and Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, uh, very similar to the adjectives, as you said, that we saw used to describe Hillary Clinton. Um, but I, you know, and I, I, is is it the case that women tend to lead and collaborate in different ways because women are just different, you know, essentialists there? Or is it simply that the nature of growing up in a society that continues to treat women differently forces women to develop different skills than the typical man yeah. develops? I don't know. And I think that's probably on some level fundamentally unknowable, but no question about it. Uh, there is, there is, in fact, a good deal of research suggesting that the types of skills that women bring to leadership positions are actually often more successful than the typical skills that men bring, whether you're looking at uh, investment banking choices or whether you're looking at political leadership. Have you ever been accused of being shrill? I'm sure I have. Not to my face, but I, I think it's... Uh, uh, doubtless, I'm sure. I'm sure I was recently, and and I called that person out for being sexist. Who called you shrill? For you, I can't say. Oh. Well done, Evelyn. Yeah, well, you should shut them down. Yeah. You know, I was, I'm thinking about all of this in the context, you know, that men sort of create a world that plays up their manliness, because after all, you know, what was Pepin the Short? Pepin the Short. You know, Pepin the Short's title was King of the Franks. <laughs> David, you've been Googling. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well. So, David, you always tease Rosa and me when we are scrolling through Twitter while we are having this conversation <laughs> and rewarding recording. And now I feel like we need to have, we need to attach Google alerts onto everybody's computers so that if we get caught Googling something um, in the course of the conversation, that that also gets uh draws your attention well first of all i don't object to you scrolling through twitter it's the fact that you're tweeting out about the show, you know? it's like you're having like two conversations at once and it's like, you know, here we're having that's this because theory. we're women and we can multitask we no, can multitask it's clearly true but on the other hand think if you're a man and you're 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 known to history as pep in the short i mean that's particularly if you're supposed to be king of the franks and think think about where that leaves you. On the other hand, of course, Pepin the Short is most famous, oddly enough, for his <laughs> progeny, right? Uh, <laughs> um, which is to say Charlemagne, who got a much better nickname, right? Charles the Great compared to, oh, my yes. dad's- Holy Pepin. Roman Emperor. Right, which is a good title. It's a good title. Yeah. Not quite as good as Professor of Dark Arts, but but Is right that, up there. Was that your title at, at West Point? You know, I tried to negotiate it into my contract, but I think the Harry Potter series actually had a copyright on it. Oh, I see. Because you could have been the Severus Snake professor. Exactly. Of that's point. that's what I wanted. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, I mean, I worry that we are going to sink into this. You know, Evelyn, you go on there. You know, all of us do it time to time. But on these TV shows and we get this kind of analysis and it's so gendered still to this day, even after the Hillary Clinton debacle. Yeah. 
Well, even worse is, um, I mean, related, but not exactly on the topic. I, I get really irritated when there's an issue of war and peace, but mainly war and, and defense spending or weapons. And then there's just an automatic, well, let's call the, the man, who hasn't, been, man. Who, hasn't, <laughs> who hasn't stepped foot inside the Pentagon in like 30 years, you know, who's maybe not even a retired, you know, senior military officer. And let's put that person on television and interview them instead of a very qualified woman who has more recent experience and knows how to talk about weapons. And uh, it's just tiring. Yeah, or strategy, because a ton of the time you'll get lieutenant colonel whomever who, you know, who doesn't have any perspective on the policy apparatus within the Pentagon. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, they might know the weapon systems. Yeah. One of so the it's, great it's, delights of watching progress occur is not only the number of Pentagon correspondents who are now women, mm-hmm. but the number of their male colleagues like Aaron Maida, who promote them, who support them, who retweet their articles. I'm sure everybody saw the, the report that that men's work gets retweeted something like 10 times more than women's work. But you can actually see oh, that changing. Wow. You, you can actually see that changing. Um, and it's a delight to behold. It is a delight. I, I have yeah. to say this moment is kind of a delight. Now, there will be some men and they will enter in. And I mean, there already are a couple of men in the democratic field. But right now, the leading voices, the ones who've captured sort of the attention in the Democratic field are Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren. And, and and you know, Trump now when he says stuff, and then there's Nancy Pelosi, he yeah. gets this chorus of very strong women who are a million times smarter than him, shutting him down, saying he's lying, calling him out. And it's just after the past couple of years, it's such a refreshing moment um, and given his abuses, it's such a uh, it's such a just moment too, considering how badly he's treated women. I have to say, I I have had quite a patriotic reaction. Although a, a conservative, I've had this enormous patriotic reaction to watching Nancy Pelosi remind all of us what Congress <laughs> is capable of. Yeah, right. That yeah. that oh. the legislative powers are in her control. And she is going to show the president how this is done. And and um, it's been, you know, she knows the rules better than he does. She can figure out ways to make him put his foot in a wolf trap. Um, and I feel like not only is it a delight to behold that, but it's also really interesting to see that the shock of the Trump candidacy is wearing off. And people have been turning keys in the locks and figuring out what is the effective strategy to box in or defeat the president. And clearly, a lot of Democrats, at least, believe that a female voice will have cadences um, that a male voice might not, or or it will be harder for the president to do his weird bullying thing, it'll come off differently to the public towards women who are his colleagues. Yeah, well, there, there seems to be this kind of emerging, you know, meme, uh, uh, Evelyn, you know, that uh, 
that the Trump administration is Trump and it's Whitaker and it's uh, Kavanaugh and it's guys yelling at people. And the response to it is women saying that's not true or Nancy Pelosi clapping in a kind of condescending <laughs> way um, that, or, that, that, you know, or sort of pulling her collar as she walks out of the White House with her shades on. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh, you mean there's something more powerful and compelling than shouting? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think this this uh, when when you I thought where you were going was the Russia probe because I because uh, you called on me and I thought of all the people who have been working for the president and and they're all men. I mean, the only one who's kind of been ensnared in it who's American. I'm going to leave Butina out of it. Um, is potentially Ivanka, maybe Betsy DeVos, but not really, I, I don't know if it's her brother or her, because there's the issue of her server. Um, but most of these people who are accused of corruption, of uh, lying, you know, in any, and many usually to hide their corruption, you know, and potentially conspiring with a foreign government to subvert our elections, all these people have been men. So that's another kind of interesting element of this. Uh, most of them have been men anyway, we'll put it that way. So I am not, I'm not prepared to believe that women are any less likely <laughs> to be seedy, corrupt, venal, um, and criminal than men. No, as I agree. Far, I agree. As yeah. far as I will go is that the kind of people that the president surrounds himself with have all had the kind of opportunities um, that that allow them wide latitude for their graft and seediness. And that there, since there are fewer women CEOs and uh, Trump only likes one of his daughters. <laughs> the, it's not that we are any better humans. It's that there are a few of us in the rarefied air of, say, the Treasury Secretary. Um, and therefore, uh, that's why it's showing less. That yeah. and the fact that the president is a weird, scared misogynist who... Um, who clearly can't figure out how to deal with women as peers and colleagues. And I agree, I agree. Angela Merkel and Theresa May. I think you're being unfair because I think Louise Linton actually controls the whole administration. (laughs) (laughs) Can I just say I agree with that? But but I guess what I was trying to say, maybe I didn't, I should have added all of that stuff you just said, but I didn't have enough time, um, was was just the optics. You know, I, I think that's what I had in mind was optics. But you're right. Women can be just as venal. No, no. Come on, Rosa. We're coming up on the end. We have two minutes left here. Please stand up and say, no, women are better than <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, they are better, but, but, you know, um, when they're venal, they're just better at it. What can I say? Um, no, I mean, I, I do think it's, it's important for us to sort of hold in our minds several things at once, which are not actually contradictory. One of them being that, uh, there is tremendous sexism and, and enormous barriers still to women getting into leadership positions. Another is that there is a ton of evidence that, at least in the world as it now exists, that women are often make more effective leaders than men make, and that that evidence is widely ignored by the largely male <laughs> leadership level that is currently there. Um, um, 
in fact, women, as as we know, they may be they may be characterologically just as venal, but they 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 appear to commit far fewer crimes. Uh, they do seem a little better at staying out of trouble than the boys. Um, they're also, I'm happy to say, uh, somewhat less likely to send pictures of their private parts via Twitter to random strangers than men are. Um, um, I don't and, and, and yet, that. and yet, also that, keep. Why do people do that? I don't, I don't, I, let's not even go there. Um, but but also keep in mind that that there is absolutely zero evidence that any of the things that. All, all of the good things that currently exist about how women act are somehow essential to being female. And unfortunately, there is there is plenty of reason to believe that as women gain positions of power, some of the very things that make them effective and good leaders may disappear. Because as Corey suggested earlier, um, the, the skill sets of the powerless are different from the skill sets of the powerful because they have to be. Uh, and the more you get powerful, it may be that some of those differences start dissipating. Yeah, I think that's Which would be a dubious right. form of progress, but. <laughs> right. <laughs> progress yeah. for equality, a step backward for civilization. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a beautiful conservative conclusion to come to, Rosa. <laughs> I, I, and I think it's beautifully wrapped up, so I'm not going to try to put a bow on it. I want to thank you all. Uh, for one of the most uh, entertaining and most deep state-like deep state radio episodes <laughs> I can think of in a long time. It's just the right mix of things. And uh, for those of you who like this, you know, go to deepstateradionetwork.com, listen to the other podcasts, read the stuff that we have up there that is in word form, buy, buy swag things, or better yet, and I'm really serious, join Deep State Radio, become a member, help support Yay! Yay! We will think better of you. And if you don't do it, <laughs> we will think less of you. Um, if, if, if we think of you at all, um, there's all these French kings we have to remember. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, in any event, thank you all. And uh, join us again sometime soon for another episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.